Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. As you know, uh, this coming weekend I'll be on Orcas Island with about 350 of my new best friends, <laughs> where we will all be participating in the Imagine Convergence. And uh, even though the event is now sold out, you can still buy a $45 live stream pass, and that gives you access to all of the main hall sessions, which uh, features about 18 different presenters. And you'll also be able to access the recordings of those events for 15 days after the end of the conference. So you don't have to be tied to the schedule during the conference if you want to live stream it. And once I return from this event, you'll be hearing a lot more about it. But uh, if you want to attend via the live stream, you'll find the link in today's program notes, which are available at psychedelicsalon.com. Now, before I introduce today's program, I would first like to thank Samuel G. and Ian W. for their recurring donations to the salon. And an extra big thank you goes out to Owen M.B. from the U.K., who surprised me by mailing what I consider to be a wad of cash. <laughs> and it couldn't have come at a better time, because I'd been trying to figure out how to put together a little spending money to take on my trip this week. So, Owen, you will be in my thoughts all week while I'm on Orcas Island. Thanks again. Also, I'd like to thank my fellow saloners who have been supporting me on Patreon. After almost two years now, we seem to have stabilized at around 400 supporters. And uh, over that time, another 45 have come and gone, but it now looks like we'll be able to reach my goal of 500 supporters by the end of this year. And if you're interested in joining the live version of this salon, which I host for my supporters on Patreon every Monday evening, well, it only costs $1 a month. And beginning in April, I plan on featuring special guests on many of those nights. For example, on Monday, April 1st, and by the way, that is April 1st of 2019 for any time travelers who are joining us here in the future. But on April 1st of this year, our guest will be one of the most interesting people that we've featured here in the salon in the past. He is Peter Gorman. And besides being an Amazonian adventurer, who none other than Terrence McKenna pointed out as the real deal, well, he was also the publisher of High Times Magazine for several years. And in the weeks following Peter's appearance, there will be other guests who I'm sure you'll also be interested in asking questions of yourself. So I hope to see you there. Now, for today's program. Originally, I planned on playing the next of Lex Pelger's fascinating interviews, but when the news reached me that Ralph Messner died three days ago, well, I was once again taken aback by a death that I hadn't anticipated. Even though Ralph was a bit older than me, it, well, it was still a shock to hear of his passing. And it made me think of how many others of my friends and acquaintances have slipped out of this life before I was ready to say goodbye to them. People like Dr. Tom, Dale Pendell, Daniel Jabor, Fraser Clark, Noah, John Perry Barlow, Carla Higdon, Kyle, and Linda Rosa, among others. And since they were all younger than me, their deaths surprised me more than the deaths of my good friends like Gary Fisher, Myron Stolaroff, and Nick Sand. And while you can still listen to some of their words of wisdom that I've preserved here in the salon, I still don't feel as if I've done enough to keep their accomplishments in focus for those of us who continue to do the work. Now, Nick Sand's death was a really big shock to me. 
mainly because I still had several things that I planned on discussing with him. However, I kept putting that conversation off until a more convenient season, and, well, and then the opportunity was gone. About a week or so after Nick died, which is almost two years ago now, one of our fellow saloners sent me a recording of an interview that Nick gave several years before his death. At the time, I was, well, I was just too sad to even listen to it, and then it slipped away in the clutter of all the cargo that I've been carrying around. During my recent move, however, I came across that recording once again, and after listening to it, I realized that the best way to keep Nick's spirit alive in each of us is to play that interview and let Nick tell us about his life's journey in his own words. The conversation with Nick's hand that I'm about to play for you took place on a podcast called The Opium Den. Now, as best I can find out, it was hosted by Daniel Williams, but since I couldn't find Daniel, and since I didn't know much about this recording that I'd been given, I figured that it would be easier for me to have to beg for forgiveness after the fact for having podcast this interview than it would be to ask permission first. <laughs> and that's an old trick I learned when I was a lawyer, by the way. So, uh, Daniel, I hope that it's okay for me to podcast this wonderful interview that you did with Nick. And uh, if you learn about the Salon's live podcast, and should you ever want to join us one Monday evening, we would love to have you for a guest. In fact, I'm sure that your stories are actually as fascinating as Nick's. Anyway, now here is a long-forgotten conversation with the legendary alchemist and the creator of Orange Sunshine LSD, Nick Sand. Nicholas Sand, good afternoon. Welcome to the Opium Den. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Glad, glad, glad to be with you. Well, I've got uh, a, a lot of listeners out there that are pretty excited about hearing from uh, what is what most people consider you to be the most legendary um, LSD chemist to, to ever to ever make LSD. So I, I really appreciate you coming in and. How I'd like to how I'd like to start off, if you don't mind, I'd like you to take us back to when you first became uh, aware and interested in psychedelics and and how that uh, how you walked that path. Well, okay, I guess we're gonna have to go back to the early '60s. I was studying anthropology at Brooklyn College, and I had uh, become fascinated by uh, cultural revitalization movements. This is when a culture has been destroyed by another culture, so the white man coming and destroying the American Indian cultures, that caused an uprising of the use of peyote, which managed to allow them to uh, rid themselves of white man's sickness and alcoholism and to uh, cure their uh, inability to function by combining the cultural values of both uh, the their native indigenous um, uh, values and the maturation uh, stages of uh, growing up with the uh, American uh, white one, which had impinged and basically destroyed their cultures. But peyote managed to allow them to bridge that gap and find new integration. So I found this really fascinating. And then speaking to Tim one day, he said, oh, you know, there's this woman down in Oaxaca. No, Tim, and, you mean Tim uh, Leary or Tim Scully? Pardon? I, I, Tim, I didn't mean Tim to Leary, actually. Tim Leary, okay. And uh, so I decided on my own 
to take a group, and we went down and we studied and were initiated by Maria Sabinas of the Mazatec Indians in the use of uh, the psilocybin mushroom. Um, and that was a very enlightening experience for me. I had, my first thing had been mescaline, and I did it according to the rituals of the, um, the Kiowa Indians. And um, I needed some sort of framework. And it was after these two experiences, which had been, the mescaline trip was an amazing trip for me. I sat the whole night nude in the lotus position, looking into the fire, feeling my chakras sending lotuses into the fire, which exploded into all of the vast potentials I had in each center of my being. And this was such a transcendent experience. It caused me to take off a year just to integrate it all, because I realized I'd gone from someone who had very low self-esteem to someone who realized there was nothing I couldn't do if I applied myself with positive energy. So this was a real breakthrough. So I went and studied with Maria and had more breakthroughs and more realizations. And when I came back, I uh, decided to be at the encouragement of uh, a guy working at a chemical company as a lab tech that we should make some psilocybin. Well, that was an extremely ambitious project which failed, but in the process, the analogous procedure for making dimethyltryptamine, DMT, um, was the same up to the last step where I had failed. So by simply switching starting materials, I was able to make a whole lot of DMT, and I started turning people on to DMT, which was changing a lot of people's lives around. And uh, then uh, one night I went to attend a lecture with uh, Richard Alpert, uh, now Ram Das living in Hawaii, good friend of mine for over 40 years. Um, and um, after the lecture, we, a group of us went up to, you know, chat with him further, ask questions and so on. And the third group thinned out and eventually there was only me and a lab tech left. I was manufacturing DNT in the basement of my mom's house at the time. <laughs> And uh, I took Richard home, and I showed him my little lab, and I showed him what I was studying and uh, how I was very inspired by DNT, which was also giving me one life-transforming realization after another. So he said, why don't you come up to Millbrook? And I said, I'd love to come up to Millbrook. Now, to tell, was, excuse me, Nick, tell everybody who yeah. Millbrook, what Millbrook was. They may not understand, right? Right. Okay. Well, when uh, Richard Alpert, uh, now called Ram Das, and Timothy Leary were professors at Harvard, they entered into a series of experiments with psilocybin. And they formed a group in Newton Center, Massachusetts. But then they got fired from Harvard, and they decided to move, and they were given... Uh, a gracious refuge by uh, Billy Hitchcock, who was the snitch in my trial, Sunshine trial. But uh, he was, up to that time, a good friend of mine and one of my tripping buddies. Um, and um, I began to be introduced to the concept of set and setting. And this is the thing, mostly, that I would really like to... Uh, 
uh, talk about. Now, Millbrook was a large house on a mansion, and many people came there, uh, celebrities, authors, editors, uh, even a few politicians came through, and it was our uh, joy to turn them on in a guided session with the proper uh, accoutrements, sound of running water, fish swimming, something over 500 years old. Uh, it's in uh, a poem that Timothy wrote called During the Session. And so the set and setting concept was really developed and refined uh, to a very high degree at Millbrook, which was a psychedelic center, which became the uh, home of the Castalia Foundation and the League for Spiritual Discovery, which was an incorporated religion. And we thought we were protected because of the First Amendment rights that allows us to worship uh, in any way we want. And uh, to our chagrin, a few years later, we found out that, no, we didn't have those rights and uh, that we were being turned into criminals. But during this time, there was no fear of being arrested because nothing we were doing was illegal, neither the manufacture, the distribution, the turning on, or the use or possession. So set and setting is such an important part. Now, set is what you bring to the session, your uh, feelings at the moment. So if you're going to uh, create a good set, it's good not to eat heavily before a meal. It's uh, not have a meal before the session. Uh, if you're um, robust physique, probably good to fast a day or two, completely just drink water. You'll get the most out of your session that way. Setting is the environment. And at that time, the environment at Millbrook was a beautiful 2600 estate in the 70-room mansion. It was built around the turn of the century. It was gorgeous and surrounded by hundreds of acres, thousands of acres of forests and lakes and rivers. It was an ideal set and setting. Mm, similar to um, Albert's vision of having a place with lakes and swans and temples where people could be initiated in a paradisical world. So the set and setting is really critical. You know, we found that if we could make the setting beautiful with flowers and everybody clean and dressed and prepared for the trip, that it was much better. The setting, the aesthetics and beauty with which you surround yourself before the trip um, and is often more difficult in a traditional home. So many people have resorted to going out into the wild and relating to nature directly, which is another way of creating you know, a beautiful setting. But this all changed in 65 and 66. And I began to notice at the psychedelic gatherings that people were taking like barbiturates and wine and people weren't dancing anymore. The joy of freaking freely in the California Dionysian scene uh, became very muted. And the, the effect of psychedelics is that they are so uh, sensitizing to everything that's in you. They put you in touch with your DNA. They put you in touch with the cosmos. Then to have this terror 
that someone's going to kick in your door, knock you down, chain you up, and drag you away for having a religious experience really changed the, the entire ambience of the United States at this time because there was no way to turn on anymore without knowing back in your mind somewhere that you're now a criminal doing this. And so our religious freedoms were, um, uh, we were relieved of our religious freedoms at this time. And as a result, millions of people have been prosecuted and tortured and uh, put into jail over the last 40 years of this drug war. And you, you being a prominent one who was uh, arrested and, and, and thrown into jail, um, well, m- moving from Millbrook, uh, what, where, did your, where did your mind and uh, experience take you uh, from Millbrook? Where did you go next? Well, um, there was a very uh, beautiful girl at Millbrook uh, who, and someone who came from California who was living on a 300-acre ranch. Um, and we moved there, uh, and I had my child there. Uh, and this was in California, Northern California, in Cloverdale, and we formed one of the first psychedelic communes, and we were all into going back to the land and to feel nature and to form a family tribal unit that could share the psychedelic experience. Um, so that's what I did, and I ran into Owsley at Millbrook, and he invited me also, and uh, he became a strong critic of the purity of my uh, psychedelic sacraments and gave me a few verbal boots in the ass um, <laughs> about it, and uh, so I endeavored to produce something that was finer than uh, even pharmaceutical grade. And I succeeded, and that's why the uh, the onset of the LSD that I made is always so smooth. Um, not always, because some people don't have the right set and setting, but if they do, it is very smooth, because LSD is a magnifying intensifier. And so if there are other impurities in it, even though they wouldn't normally have any effect on you, you can see them under this microscope uh, and macroscope that uh, you experience during the LSD experience. So LSD not made in, the, in Owsley's tradition and in Tim Scully's tradition of making absolutely pure, double recrystallized, chromatographed LSD, um, if you don't have that, you will have a good experience probably, but it won't be as good and it won't be as smooth, but it will still work. Well, Orange, uh, Orange Sunshine was the first LSD that I ever took back in the early summer of 1970. And uh, I, must, I must agree with, uh, with everyone else that I've ever met that took the drug back then in, uh, in that time was that uh, Orange Sunshine was the most pure and the best LSD uh, I've ever taken, and it still remains in the in the minds of many as the uh, the very best LSD ever produced. So, uh, thanks, thank you to, for me, and probably uh, millions of others who uh, experienced uh, such a pure pharmaceutical grade of of LSD. Did did you get a lot of uh, feedback at the time with regards to uh, 
what you were making, or were you just too busy? Well, yes, busy running the commune, busy running underground laboratories, which are very elaborately, you know, because of the security and, you know, the observation of any place where you can source uh, equipment or chemicals. So we had to stage these almost like quasi or paramilitary operations, you know, like little spy units, little groups that would go out. Um, but what happened was that when the Iron Sunshine came out, um, and it was a whacking good dose, and it has been verified uh, to me personally by one of the head forensic chemists of the DEA, that uh, he was amazed that when he analyzed my LSD, the orange sunshine, at every tablet, every tablet he analyzed had precisely 300 micrograms. Pharmaceutical uh, tableting and stuff has a 1 to 10% variation that's allowable. So this was even better than uh, pharmaceutical grade. But the groundswell that occurred from the release of uh, that uh, LSD that Tim and I made, Tim Scully, who was my partner in the uh, Orange uh, Sunshine Project, um, was so powerful, uh, it caused such a uh, tsunami from Washington, became very frightened at a force that could stop the Vietnam War in its tracks, uh, to which I think Orange Sunshine did play a role. Yes, it did. Um, was um, so disrupting. It destroyed our commune. They stole our land. Uh, we had all worked very hard, and over the years we had uh, saved up enough money, but everybody was so terrified they couldn't come forward. So I took the rap, and using tax evasion things like they did with Al Capone, they managed to wangle you know, a 15-year sentence for me, and front of a judge, you know, was appointed to spearhead the uh, war on drugs. And uh, so um, I didn't get any feedback. I had to run. I was, in, I was arrested with five shotguns to my head. I'm a total pacifist. I've been a yogi since I've been 15. And this whole thing was so bizarre and Kafkaesque. Uh, that it was all happening to me, and there I was being taken from one venue to another in chains and shackles, and um, you know, it's basically torture. They want you to cop a plea, and they will torture you until they get one from you, and you have the worst facilities as long as you're fighting your case, and it prolongs the time in jail, which is extremely uncomfortable. Uh, it's meant for short-term you know, processing, but usually winds up, you know, being years and years of torture. So many people broke. I fought my case to the bitter end. I would not, I would, did not want to uh, give in to that whole thing. And I finally got out on appeal bond after being sentenced to 15 years. At this time, I had a choice to make. I had a young daughter who I was completely in love with, and um, I decided that I could not be separated from my daughter. I was already teaching her at home to read and write and all of this. And she was the joy of my life. And I said, I am not going to lose this. And I took her 
and my wife, and we fled to Canada, where we joined the network of uh, uh, peace activists, draft dodgers, and drug fugitives, mainly psychedelic and uh, marijuana. And that's where we lived for 20 years, uh, using a false ID that was very well made. And we went all over the world. I went to India. I lived in ashrams and studied yoga and meditation. Uh, so by the time I got back to Canada and started a new laboratory, I still had no idea. It wasn't until I appeared uh, in front of the mind states uh, in Berkeley um, that I realized how many people came up to me and said, you, you have changed my whole life. I've been wanting to meet you for 20 or 30 years. And, of course, this was um, amazing to me. This was in 2001. So this was the 2001 Mind States. I think it was in May, late May. And um, so after um, I made that appearance, really, it was like since 1970 till 2001, I had no idea of the effects of what I was doing. I did it sheerly on my own personal experience and how important it became to me through all of my visions that everybody must get stoned, as Dylan used to say, and that it's a really good thing at least once in your life to take a look into, you know, your inner self and see that listening to everybody above you, around you, is okay for surviving. But if you want to have a deep spiritual experience and know God, you must look within because it doesn't exist but inside of you. That's that's exactly right. Those those are my sentiments. Um, share with share with me and and our listeners uh, the lab that you that you put together in uh, in Canada and uh, and how you eventually were uh, were found out and arrested there and then extradited back to the U.S. Well. Um, When I was in Canada, uh, someone came up uh, to me um, and they said, you know, um, a few people found out who I was and what I could do. And they, uh, and I just basically was living, mining a little gold and farming up in northern Canada. Uh, living a peaceful life, and they prevailed upon me to uh, uh, open a laboratory and teach them to make psychedelics, which I agreed to do. And we got it together, and we did it, and uh, we produced very fine uh, MDMA, DMT, um, LSD, um, and eventually we were... Um, uh, arrested uh, through the uh, cowardice of another psychedelic chemist uh, named Leonard Enos, who now works for the DEA. Um, 
So that was very disappointing. The laboratory was extremely uh, beautiful. We really, it was a it was a work of love, and it worked perfectly. And we produced super fine uh, sacraments for people to take. A lot of ecstasy, a lot of pure ecstasy, uh, better than pharmaceutical grade. And um, is it? Uh, I was arrested, and then I was taken back. Um, the laboratory was one of the finest laboratories that had ever been discovered, and it was so fine a laboratory that the Health Canada official in charge of the uh, taking down of the laboratory said that they didn't have anything like this anywhere in Canada, not even in their own RCMP and uh, lab- laboratories in Ottawa. And he was very impressed with what we had. And uh, so they made a full-length full video of it, uh, which I've got a copy of. Um, it's kind of depressing, you know, to see them you know, destroy something. They didn't really destroy it, but they just made a movie of what was there. And so, but the atmosphere, of course, it's very sad, you know, very terrorizing. Many people uh, of our groups who have seen this say, I don't want to see that again. It's just too depressing. But uh, there's a full screen version of a full-length film of the uh, laboratory being uh, entered and filmed. So that does exist. But I think one of the things I would like to say uh, about uh, uh, MDMA, which we haven't hit yet, is that I think it's very important. And I think that LSD, you know, in the deconstruction of a paradigm that is beginning to be dysfunctional, such as the United States uh, policies and uh, hypocrisies, um, that you need to start to deconstruct the mental set that you've been programmed with. LSD is about deconditioning. And all the psychedelics are about deconditioning and superseding. Um, All of the programs that we reflexively react to everything, we can't say certain words with certain letters. Like if you say the F word, whoa, well, that's really so far a cry from what you could do. Uh, if you could just get out of all that, and that's what we were doing, getting out of um, the constraints of um, the mental programming that we had been uh, subjected to, and which is still, of course, going on uh, with, you know, uh, like on steroids. And But no one was really ready, because we did make um, a batch of MDA, which is a little rougher than MDMA, but it's still a love-hug drug and one where people can relate very intimately with each other. And our commune at that time was looking, they had just restricted the starter materials on all levels for making LSD, so we were waiting to make underground connections to get you know our starter materials, and in the meantime, we tried to make other things which were legal uh, to get around the, uh, the criminalization aspect, and we made some MDMA, some MDA, and we took it, and it was like, well, it's kind of nice, love hug drug, uh, only lasts four hours, and we had sort of been preconditioned to expect a 12-hour trip, but I don't think we were ready for it. I think that 
20 or 30 years after the LSD experience, um, the uh, population was now ready to go to a deeper level because all thoughts really originate from feelings, and feelings are more powerful than thoughts. So after we had, you know, culturally deconstructed bit by bit uh, through the changes that have been happening in the last 40 years, in the 80s, suddenly MDMA was rediscovered, which is a great mystery. Why did MDMA suddenly become so relevant and so important? And it was because we all need love. And all the youngsters that take it should also realize that set and setting with MDMA is also very important. And again, I'm not going to go to this division the East Coast, Apollonian, everything must be very strict and religious and do everything that does produce a very beautiful visionary trip. But there's also a way to dance to God, to walk into the fields and make love and all of that. And that's sort of more the Dionysian take. Well, I think you need both. Um, and I don't, and I think we need bridges to both. And I think the psychedelics such as mescaline, psilocybin, and LSD are the ones that are more mental, and MDA and MDMA are the ones that activate the heart. And it's so important for the youth and the young people taking it to understand that this is a sacrament, and you can have way better trips by doing it in a sacred and private um, situation instead of at parties where people are drinking booze and stuff like that. That, to me, is kind of sacrilegious. Oh, I uh, agree with you. It, it, that is a that is sacrilegious to mix alcohol or or even you know other drugs, barbiturates, amphetamines with either LSD or any of the psychedelics, MDMA. Uh, to to mix to mix chemicals is 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 not a uh, a very good thing. But what, what I, I don't want to, to bring you down, so to speak, but I, I would like our listeners to hear about uh, your trials and tribulations once you were um, extradited back to the United States and uh, where you stood tr- trial and uh, were, were put in jail. So uh, g- give, us a, give us your thoughts uh, on, on how all that went down and who betrayed you and, and uh, how you came through it all. Because like I said, when I met you in, in Basel, Switzerland, uh, you were just the, the sweetest, nicest man I'd ever met, and to know that you had been through such a uh, such a hassle uh, gave me gave me hope that uh, others can do the same thing. So give us a give us a your view on uh, on your prison time and and how all that came to pass. Well, the prison time was actually rather interesting. It, it happened in two phases. The first was when I was arrested. I had a very beautiful laboratory in St. Louis, <clears throat> and uh, I was arrested there. And in 1974, uh, I think it was at the right shortly, yeah, I was in the beginning, January 70. Uh, January 74, I was arrested uh, in Missouri. I was held there for a while. Uh, They hadn't done the arrest correctly, and the case was thrown out for my laboratories in uh, uh, St. Louis. 
Um, so I was then transported to California, chained uh, and shackled, uh, and driven, uh, sometimes fly, flown to uh, San Francisco, where I was put into the San Francisco County Jail. Now, the San Francisco County Jail is a pretty rough jail, and for a city that likes to consider itself uh, enlightened, um, it is a really uh, a cancerous ulcer uh, on the morality of the people that allow such a system to go on. I witnessed guards taking out uh, mentally sick people and practicing karate on them, and I actually got two guards fired uh, for doing that because my lawyer was very close with Hongisto, uh, who was the sheriff. And I told him what happened and, you know, why the guy wound up in the hospital. And he transmitted to Hongisto, and those guards were uh, fired. So I did a little good there, and I eventually uh, avoided being raped, beaten, and everything by the people, you know, who have been disenfranchised from, you know, the wealth of our society, and have become thieves and uh, whatever, you know, all the people you find in jail. At that time, there were very few people in for drugs. Uh, it was mainly in, like, robbers and uh, people who beat people up and murderers and things like that. So that was a really heavy experience. It was very depressing. It was very scary. And eventually I got out of the tanks and became a trustee because they needed someone smart enough to, you know, to run... Uh, the control center because the guards couldn't really deal with it. it not computerized at that time. The jail experience was pretty heavy, and uh, but I learned a lot there. And uh, as soon as I uh, uh, was convicted, uh, they sent me up to McNeil Island. Now McNeil Island was, a, I believe, it was built by the same architect who did Alcatraz which is such an eyesore and such a shame to San Francisco that they had to shut it down. So they put me up into one just like it, located in a fog-bound Puget Sound, uh, in a place where prisoners were, you know, routinely killing themselves. As I was booked into the prison, they were dragging body bags out for people who had committed suicide uh, from being in the hole too long. And a whole lot of stuff was going on then. Uh, that is still going on, you know, uh, at an accelerated rate. I mean, it's tens, probably tens of millions of people just for marijuana have gone through this system in the last 40, 50 years, and that's just criminal. I mean, do people using marijuana is just, it's crazy. Uh, how can you make a plant illegal? So, Personally, um, in that phase, I did not do very well, to be uh, frank with you. I managed to survive. I managed to get out. I uh, became a, an operating room technician uh, working during, during surgery with uh, visiting surgeons to the prison. And then I continued to do that when I got out on appeal bond. But when it came time uh, for... Uh, the appeal, uh, it was denied, and I didn't have any confidence uh, that um, I would get any relief from uh, the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. So I just quietly vanished, 
and uh, it was quite exciting time. I was uh, living in a houseboat in Sausalito, um, pretty much just waiting to see which way the cookie was going to crumble. And uh, um, Nikki Scully came over, and uh, uh, she said, we got to get you out of here. Your appeal's been denied. So she drove me to another friend, and that friend took me to Oregon, where I met another friend from prison, and we I, I hid out there until I got enough ID to cross into Canada. I made it into Canada, no problem, and I started to live in Canada until I went. And when I established my Canadian ID, I then went to uh, India, where um, I studied uh, meditation and uh, worked in an ashram for three years. And then I returned to Canada, and I continued with the same master in Oregon. And uh, then when that commune broke up in 81, I went back up and did a variety of things, farming, beekeeping, gold mining, uh, just being in nature and uh, keeping my head down. Until again, I came to the part where uh, the, I made the laboratories uh, uh, in the, uh, when was it, the 93, 94, 95, 96, and was arrested on September 28, 1996, held there until we worked out all the details of being transferred back into the United States, at which time I was held in the same jail that I'd been in, in San Francisco County Jail for five months till my trial for bail jumping was uh, uh, where they managed to um, get the same hanging judge to do my case. And so we went for a bench trial instead of a jury trial because it was a technical issue and he had not done the procedure correctly. So Conti, the judge, was overruled 3-0 uh, by a very panel on the Ninth Circuit, which allowed me to get bail. Uh, this whole process took a couple of years, uh, during which time I was transferred from one jail to another, and then finally to Terminal Island, and then from there to Lompoc. During this time of incarceration um, and arrests, um, I think I counted 73 bed changes, 14 different institutions, and being black box chained, shackled, belly chained, handcuffed, uh, and made to travel that way for days and days. It's extremely difficult to go to the bathroom like that. Um, so the whole system is, you know, based on torture. They make no distinction between someone who got caught smoking a joint or someone who just, you know, murdered ten babies. I mean, they treat you all the same, and there's no distinction. You're just basically tortured. Now, when and, when did you? Oh, I'm sorry. When did you? When did you get out of prison uh, for the last time? And obviously, you've stayed out but when when did you get out of prison and and uh what uh, what did you do well i mean basically um when i um i i think i need to go back a little bit further uh so eventually i was transferred to terminal island and in terminal island um i had a choice i could be miserable or i could turn it by mental intention into um, a yoga camp. 
and everybody said, uh, oh, you're not going to be able to do that. You're going to have to you know, hook up with some gang because someone's going to have to protect you in prison. I said, I don't think so. So I got uh, one of those 20-minute, you know, uh, day jobs eventually after taking care of the roses, which I liked doing very much. And uh, then I went and worked as an orderly in one of their units, and I walked five miles every day. I did two and a half hours of yoga and meditation, and I wrote. I wrote a book, a manual on how to use psychedelics. I wrote articles on different trip experiences, and I was successful in not letting the prison experience really bring me down. Now, of course, the food is out of date and uh, of very low quality and not very nourishing, so my health did begin to deteriorate a bit from that. Um, I've recovered by now. Um, so I think I did the jail experience a second time way better, you know, using the lessons from the psychedelics about set setting, but at this time, even a more advanced concept, that of intention how you can set your intention in your life to be joyous, to be open-handed, or to be closed-fist, uptight, and miserable. And we all have this choice every day when we wake up, misery or joy, misery or joy. And some people say, well, I want to be real, and I'm miserable. But misery and joy on a certain level of consciousness are both illusory. So if you put on the joyous mask for a while, sometimes it becomes second nature and becomes natural. If you put the misery mask on, the same thing occurs. Uh, so you really have a, a simple choice. Uh, I stayed in prison until December 20th, um, 2000. And at this time, Everyone said, oh, don't expect to get parole. You're old law, but you're not going to get it because nobody got it. Uh, but my behavior was so exemplary. I got complimentary release, early termination from Washington, um, at which time I started working in a jewelry store, uh, started editing uh, my book, and um, yeah, then I went to the halfway house. That's right. Um, the, when I got out of prison on the 20th of December, I, my term was still not up. And, uh, the halfway house, uh, I stayed in for about four months. Um, and I was not allowed to, uh, sleep anywhere else. But then after a while, they started giving me weekends at home with Rusha and then, uh, um, they gave me home confinement, and it was during this period of transition uh, to so-called normal society that I was invited to speak at the mind states, and it was at that time that I had this incredible, uh, just shock to stand in front of 600 people uh, that the uh, producer said he had never seen anyone get a standing ovation from everyone from the talk I gave. I still have copies of that talk, should anyone want them. Eventually I'm going to organize a website and put it all up there for everyone to read. Just haven't gotten to it yet. Um, does that answer your question? Uh, yes, it does, and I think it uh, it answers it very well. So tell us, uh, 
I've got a couple more uh, other questions here, but I'd like you to tell us what you've been doing since uh, 2000. What's, what has the last nine years of Nick Sands' life been like? It's been very, very, very beautiful. Um, Usha waited for me for years and years while I was in prison, and we wrote dozens and dozens of, you know, many-paged letters where we worked out, you know, our love. And when I got out, um, we began to live a life together here in California, doing organic gardening. I was working in a jewelry store for years till I retired. And um, just been uh, California is a very beautiful place. And uh, we live in a gorgeous little spot in the woods. And uh, it's just been very peaceful, lots of yoga, meditation, walking in the hills and uh, being in love. Well, being in love is the is the is the greatest thing any any one person can do uh, with another. And uh, take take us back just a little bit. Uh, tell us, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about Timothy Leary whether he, you know, whether he screwed the pooch on LSD was was good for the uh, was good for LSD or bad. What what is what's your opinion of of Timothy Leary and and how do you think his his legacy should be written? Well, okay. Um, Timothy Leary comes from um, you know, an older paradigm, baseball and beer. And his contact with psilocybin you know, was very revelatory. But the, um, the enculturated um, values that he had were you know, so strong from this older paradigm um, that... And he was an intellectual. He was not a spiritualist. See, this is the difference between um, him and other people, like Ramdas, who, you know, it became a spiritual journey for him that then brought him to India and Nimkaroli Baba, where he studied meditation. So there were two ways to go. But Timothy was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, quicksilver mind, and his... One of his great uh, psychological techniques was to invent these slogans that had incredible effects on people. And uh, so it worked very well. I mean, he would be going out and saying, tune in, turn on, and drop out, you know, which basically means hear the DNA singing in your blood. Uh, drop out of restricted life where there's no love and there are bad choices that are the only ones that are presented to you and um, do this by turning on. And so, in a way, he and I were a team, uh, even though he and I really didn't get along that well. Uh, I still loved and respected him. Um, And I think his legacy should be remembered as the man who was the snake oil salesman. He's the guy who went out and said, we have a cure-all here, and I want everybody to hear about it. So it was Timothy's work as a publicist and the philosopher for LSD and turning on the youth. Um, without his work, there would have been much less interest in it. And 
you know, when I was introduced in Basel, the man who introduced me said, um, there are two people at this conference who have really turned on the world. One is Albert Hoffman, and the other is Nick Sand. And even though I was not, not invited to speak in Basel, he gave me his spot and uh, allowed me to tell my story. That was Bob Horty. Right. He was a good friend and a very generous person who I just barely met at the time, who felt, I think, in many ways the same way you do. Um, so where would you like to go? Well, so your, your, your belief that uh, Timothy Leary's legacy should be that uh, he was the, the publicist and... Uh, uh, the Pied Piper, for lack of a better term, and that on balance, uh, what he did was good? Um, I don't really think in terms of good and bad. Uh, I do think that psychedelics are good. Uh, everyone makes mistakes. We're all experimenting if we're living life, and we learn by our mistakes. Um, we all learn by our mistakes. And those mistakes were very important and nothing to feel bad about. People make mistakes, and they should not condemn themselves for it. They should love themselves and realize that the mistake is showing them a new way to do things that's better and often is the beginning of an invention. So Timothy really was the person that spread the idea of turning on to the whole world while the intellectuals and the medical profession were threatened and disappointed because his popularization led to many changes in the basic culture, which then brought the government in and restricted all LSD research. So naturally, these researchers were very frustrated, and they had to change their entire tactics, and they too had to go underground if they were going to continue uh, using LSD and other psychedelics as psychotherapists. So it's been a long hi hi hiatus since the time when psychedelics could be used for, uh, you know, legally for research till now when it's just starting to occur again. And... I think that um, what Timothy was getting at was self-realization, and that is what it's all been about for me, too. Self-realization and the sharing of the love, the sharing of the light, which is you know, a side effect of having a positive experience on any of the psychedelics or pathogens. Uh, so his role was very important. Um, and I think his role was to support the spiritual umbrella uh, over which all these other little disciplines like psychology, psychiatry, um, harm reduction, all this kind of stuff wants to say, well, we're going to do it legally, we're going to do it right, and it's going to be done according to government regulations. You know, and right there, it kind of like will destroy your set and setting. But we're managing and I'm in touch with all the people that are using uh, psychedelics legally, and uh, um, their work is excellent. Uh, but I think we have to keep in mind that the medical model is superseded by the transcendent spiritual model, which is the deepest level that you can go to in life and should not have the restrictions of the medical model. I, I, that, that is very well well put, Nick. That's exactly my my thoughts on the issue, and I, I couldn't have uh, couldn't have said it any better. 
I do a lot of, um, I give a lot of lectures on college campuses about drugs and drug policy. And uh, I'm encouraged by, one, the, uh, uh, the responsibility of, of young people and wanting to know ex- exactly what it is that they're ingesting into their systems. But I have found, uh, to my surprise and comfort, that there is a, a still a very tremendous interest in, in psychedelics, uh, specifically LSD, and, uh, and there's a lot of uh, mushrooms being consumed. So um, the, the, always a great interest, and they, and they love to hear about Albert Hoffman and, and, name, and people like you that were responsible for allowing uh, them to, uh, to discover their, their inner beauty and uh, stretch their minds. Um, what I, what I have found, though, and, I, and I want, I, I'd like to get your comments on this, over the past maybe 10 or 15 years, um, what the, the LSD that I've been able to find um, seems to be of a, a much smaller dose level than the uh, original days of Orange Sunshine, White Lightning, and some of the others. Do you, do you sense that, or is that just something that, uh, that's just an anomaly for, for my search? Or do you think that um, the LSD experiences that people are having today, uh, with the with the lower dose uh, levels, are, are are somehow less less satisfying or, or less enlightening than than the early days when 300 micrograms would literally blow your mind and you would see God and commune with nature? What what, what are your thoughts on that? Well. Um in part, I think I'm responsible for it, and in part, I think it has to do with the terrorism uh, of the war on drugs and on on the people it's supposed to protect. Um, and when I was in Canada, I realized, you know, the incredible tsunami I had started with 300 mics because in those days, people really didn't know about set and setting. I think they know more about it now. Uh, and I think they could handle higher doses. But at that time, I was concerned for, you know, my personal safety. And I decided, well, let's just tell everybody what it is, how much it is, and if they want to get to a 100-mic level, take one square, making it on a blot of them, or take two squares if you want to have a really nice trip with the hallucinations begin, and three if you want to see God. And so we began to manufacture it uh, in 100 mic doses. And that, you know, went very well. And when the RCMP interviewed me, um, I said to them um, that, uh, do you have any idea how much LSD has gone out into the Vancouver area? And they said, no. And I said, you have access to all the data that comes from uh, drug abuse uh, cases and uh, medical emergencies in the emergency rooms, and you're uh, up, up, up with that, aren't you? Because I was talking to major investigator and a Health Canada official. And they said, yes, we know very well. And I said, okay, how many casualties from LSD use have you observed? Uh, in the emergency room reports, and they said none. And I said, do you know how many doses of LSD I produced here in Vancouver and distributed here? And they said, no. I said, 10 million. 
they were flabbergasted. They said, well, it must have gone somewhere else. It couldn't have been here. Cause, and I said, no, it didn't. Most of it did get here. Some went to Montreal, but mainly it was all consumed right here in Vancouver. I would not allow anyone to take it to the U.S. because I was afraid to, uh, you know, knock on that door. Uh, so I didn't allow it to go to the U.S. I just distributed it in Vancouver, and it caused, you know, uh, a great deal of uh, enlightenment uh, in the general population there. Do you um, think that... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. I'm going on a little bit further here, but yeah. what has happened is it's become more and more and more difficult to get decent starting materials, decent equipment, and decent chemicals. The restrictions have become so tight that people get whatever they can from whatever they can, and they make batches of stuff. They're so running and hiding doing this kind of manufacture that they don't have the inspiration, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the understanding anymore of how important a really pure psychedelic is. So not only have the dosages have become, you know, in many cases, disco dosages, I think uh, Arrowhead and some of the other sites who have analyzed average doses were saying they were between 25 and 50. So, and it's probably not a high-quality LSD. It is LSD, but it's very low dose. So, what people do to compensate for that is they take a strip of them, you know, five or ten at a time, right. and they have good trips. Um, a little rougher than if the LSD were made with, you know, great care and double recrystallized and all that. Um, but uh, that is sort of how the dosage levels evolved. Um, the terrorism is responsible for it, and the government is responsible for um, all of the drug tragedies that occur, because criminalization is insane. And all it's doing is bankrupting our country, and uh, it's not working, and everyone agrees the war on drugs is not working, yet it persists. So this is just, you know, um, a typical insanity that we live with among all the other insanities. Well, do you think that we'll ever get back to a, a situation where uh, much higher quality and uh, higher microgram dose levels will be produced? And, and what you said about the, the impurities and not quite as, as, as good as the, uh, the old days, I guess. And I've, I've noticed that, too. The transition uh, seems to be just a little... A little rougher, a little less smooth than uh, than some of the uh, original acid back in uh, back in uh, our time, I guess. So, do you do you do you see potential? Do you see that changing, or is it is that just going to be uh, the way it is? Well, when I go to the psychedelic gatherings to give talks and stuff like that, I hear uh, that there are many interested college students who can understand these concepts and. Um, the, when I was manufacturing LSD, it was an extremely complicated procedure until some more simple procedures were uh, uh, invented and uh, discovered and found to be relevant. So I think people are starting to understand the importance of this, the difficulty of you know, um, manufacturing pure psychedelics uh, in uh, a terrorist society is extremely difficult. And so 
mistakes are made, uh, shortcuts are taken that shouldn't be taken, uh, that are, in my view, unethical. But, you know, when you're a rat, you know, being chased by a bunch of rednecks shooting shotgun blasts at you in a woodpile, uh, sometimes, you know, you can't pick up every little stick. <laughs> and you've got to pick up every little stick. Uh, to produce a fine psychedelic, but it's very difficult in these conditions. As though you want to produce a fine wine, but you know the government is spraying the lands, they're running highways through your orchards, uh, power lines over. Well, you can't produce a good wine that way, and you can't produce a good psychedelic under those circumstances either. So yes, I am hoping that there will be a groundswell of interest. The information is available everywhere. Tikal, Tikal has all the newest formulas, and they, they all work. And I think and feel that on a ground swell level, because it never goes top down. It's always from bottom up where change occurs, because we are the base of the pyramid of power. We are the ones that support it. And as soon as we can get out of the conditioning of supporting this pyramid of oppression and spiritual restriction, um, the pyramid will come down and we can form something new where we can start treating this planet like the paradise it is and uh, develop our DNA uh, to the point where we can use it not as some kind of strange, genetically modified thing, but as a way of evolving to higher levels. Well, I think this change is occurring. I'm sure it's occurring. Uh, we're going to go through a bad patch this year, for sure, at least, and maybe a few more. But, you know, you can't make omelets without breaking eggs, and I just would recommend everybody hold on, meditate, and do whatever you can to keep your sanity, because... It is through fear that people are controlled. And if you want to be free, you have to find the source of your fear, go into it, accept it, love it, and transcend it. Well, that's, and, that's, that's very true. And, and along those lines, what, as far as is the future for, for not only psychedelics but for drug policy in general, do you think that there is any reason to be hopeful with Barack Obama as president? Well, <clears throat> um, I'm a little skeptical about Barack Obama. He just appeared out of nowhere and suddenly became a senator. And then suddenly he's been, it's sort of like he's been just, well, let's pick this one, polish him up, you know, pretty him up and put him forward and look like we're, you know, the first country who's elected a black leader out of a white population. and But the fact that 14 of his cabinet members are uh, trilateral commission members, and the fact that he's still uh, talking about sending 400,000 troops to Afghanistan, you know, which is a war of invasion and will always initiate guerrilla warfare. It's always a matter of you know, how long it will be before the invaders are either acculturated into that land or driven out. And no one has ever held Afghanistan for very long. Yeah, the Afghanis have a hard time doing it. Um, 
with with yeah, no I'm not really happy with what I'm hearing from Barack Obama but if he does manage to keep his election promise of decriminalizing marijuana I would say that's a positive step but it hasn't happened yet and the FBI figures for marijuana arrests since 7 2003 to 2007 I think it was the last ones normal reported on and um it's been like gone like 450,000 to 2003 to 525,000 to 600,000. Yeah, we just had our 20,000,000th arrest for arrest per year as of I think it was 2007. Right. So even though there are states legalizing medical marijuana and stuff like that and this is of course, you know, non-carcinogenic, non-harmful, been proven six ways to Sunday to be absolutely benign medicine. Um, and it's still illegal. Uh, and he could have, in one moment, signed an executive order legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana and forbidding any judge anywhere to throw someone in jail for marijuana. He hasn't done it. And it was one of his campaign promises. So am I thrilled by Barack Obama? No, not yet. Um, if he does something besides continue, you know, backing all the war material manufacturers, I mean, the United States lives off of war manufacture. The amount of war material we produce is twice as much as all the combined military spending of every other nation in the world. Yeah, just it's. I just read in the uh, the Wall Street Journal the other day that the uh, total, just the cost overruns, the money that we pay on top of what we've been paying to the military complex, just the cost overruns are over three hundred and fifty billion dollars a year, which is more than all of the other uh, Western societies and a few. Uh, non-Western societies spend combined on their military budgets. It's, it, is, it is just insane. It's inhumane. And, and it boggles the mind that we can blow, essentially blow more money than the rest of the world actually spends on their uh, on, on military uh, armaments. Just, it, it's just $3 billion dollars would make the world have fresh, clean, healthy water. Exactly. Well, it's, uh, uh, it's and it, for ten or fifteen billion dollars, could probably feed the whole world. Um, the fact that we're spending, uh, you know, billions of dollars in these wars, and the cost in the end is trillions of dollars, is utterly insane and criminal. We have to find our own inner peace, and if we can't do anything about it outwardly. At least we can do something inwardly. And if we can bring ourselves into a state of love and look at our own inner terror and how afraid we have been, you know, made by the government, and I can tell you they can hurt you real bad. They do hurt you real bad when you go against them. And I did it. I went through it. And I think it was worth it. Well, I think I you think came out on the other side, uh very, very well. And as as we close out today, uh, this this our conversation. Uh, again, I want to say how how happy and uh, fortunate 
I am and all of our listeners are to uh, to hear from uh, from Nick Sand, the legendary orange sunshine chemist. But I want you to comment on a on a conversation I had with Albert Hoffman when my wife and I had the good fortune to visit he and Anita in 2003. We were talking about the the, the medicine, the spiritual value of, of LSD as a medicine. And I said, well, I asked Albert, I said, well, on a, on a medicinal level, what would your recommendations be for someone throughout their life as far as taking LSD? And he said that he felt the first experience should be in your 20s to establish a worldview, to give you opposing view thoughts opposing views and thoughts and then he thought in the middle age would be a would be the second time and then uh, in your twilight years to take it a third time and reflect upon how uh, how your worldview um, evolved over those years what would you what would you say uh, if 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 it was a medicine and that was the only way we could get it what what do you think would be a proper uh, a proper uh, medicinal dose i guess and and uh, how it should be done well, um, I think first of all you have to realize that for psychedelics to work, there's a certain threshold level for when they start to really become uh, psychedelic. And in, with LSD, I think it's two to three hundred micrograms. With mescaline, it's four hundred to five hundred. Um, the burgeoning use of ayahuasca is, of course, very difficult because of its herbal nature, but it has been very important for uh, curing a lot of people. Um, you know, it's, it seems that the youth, as they hit their adolescence, and they're starting to form, um, it can, if it's not done right, um, it can be irrelevant to their development. It's just another drug experience. But it does seem to be very important to a lot of teenagers, older teenagers, 15, 16, 17, but even as young as 12, I've met many groups of 12-year-old runaways who took LSD. Did they do it right all the time? No. But was it better than what they ran away from? Yes. So, I mean, in an ideal world, yes, uh, Hoffman's uh, idea is very good. Um, but the, the reality on the ground is People need to take more trips than three trips in their life. Some people will get it on one trip. Some people uh, need to take it a lot. I had come from a very uh, difficult childhood, and I needed to take psychedelics. I think I've taken DMT and LSD and mescaline maybe a total of 2,000 times in my life. So would I limit myself to 20, 40, and 60? No, I don't think so. Um, if everything were perfect in the world, that would probably be adequate. But I think it's entirely up to the individual and how far they wanted to go. Um, a lot of the conclusions that Hoffman came to are the same ones I came to. Uh, through years of experience, set and setting, having beautiful lands and temples where people could be entertained by guides and sitters who would take them through their trips and help them, not out of their sickness, but to go from wellness to even more wellness. Um, this whole thing of the medicine, medicinal effect of it to cure something that's not right, um, once that happens, then you can go from there to things that are more brilliant. 
and after you've done your integration. Now, sometimes if you're too young and you take it, it can scramble you a bit, especially if you're doing it in like a street setting where there's no way you can really uh, find um, a peaceful place because you don't want to do it at home because you're afraid of your parents drug testing you or whatever. But um, I think it's important that it's taken early enough for you to develop this worldview and to understand uh, you know, the value of the psychedelic. On the ground, it happens a lot younger because people uh, in their uh, teens are already seeing that something's not right and something's not satisfying and something's not working and they need information. And that information can be gathered through psychedelics. Well, you and mentioned that you had... Um you had taken hallucinogens close to several thousand times, and uh, I'll be honest with you, I've never met anybody that's, that's done it that much. My experience is around a couple hundred times. But um, do, you, do, you still, uh, do you still enjoy psychedelics, or have you moved on into a different, different plane? Well, you know, I've just come through uh, experiencing a rare blood disease and uh, having a heart attack and so on. And so right now, basically, all I'm doing is uh, um, fast walking, um, yoga, meditation, and pranayam, and I've switched to an entirely vegetarian diet. Um, and I've read a very important book called The China Study, by T. Colin Campbell, who was a government nutritionist and has written a book, uh, which I think is very important. And basically it says everything that you can get from a meat-based diet, an animal-based diet, can be gotten way better from a plant-based diet. And he has 500,000 studies to back him up in peer-reviewed journals. So uh, I think we're heading toward vegetarianism. I think we're headed toward... Uh, meditation. I think we're headed towards self-realization, and there are many tools for doing that. As you get older, you don't need so much anymore. And and since, of course, I am elderly now, um, I am a little bit more limited with all the medicines I'm having to take. So, uh, meditation and the remembrance of the state, which has been so thoroughly uh, imprinted on my mind is carrying me now. And I'm realizing that there's truth, which is the first thing you need to discover. And then when you begin to understand the truth about yourself and everything around you, you can move into love. And that love connects you with all of that. And there's still yet something above love, and that is the direct perception of beauty. And I have just discovered a whole new level of that. And that's that everything around us is imbued with preciousness. And I think if we can keep moving from truth to love to beauty to preciousness, everything around us becomes sacred. And that's what I would like for everyone listening to this to understand. It is your birthright. No one can take it away from you. You are free. You are free forever. Just drop your chains and stop carrying them because someone told you to. 
You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Even though I thought I knew a lot about Nick, there were several new things that I learned about him when I was listening to this interview with you just now. And one of the things that surprised me was when he said that it wasn't until the Mind States Conference in May of 2001 that he realized what a celebrity he was and how important Orange Sunshine had been to the psychedelic community. In fact, uh, (laughs) I didn't realize this, but I was one of those people who came up to him and gushed my thanks for all that he had done. And I remember very clearly that he seemed somewhat taken aback when I said that. You see, Nick had just come backstage to congratulate me on the talk that I'd just given. As it was, uh, Nick's Mind States talk that year followed the one that I gave. And you can hear the talk of mine in Psychedelic Salon podcast number one. And as was said in that old movie, uh, well, this was the beginning of a beautiful friendship between Nick and I. By the way, if you want to see that video of Nick's Canadian Drug Lab, it's on YouTube, and I'll link to it in today's program notes, which you will find at psychedelicsalon.com. And uh, should you want to listen to that 2001 Mindsates talk that Nick gave, it too is available as the Salon Podcast number 37, which Nick titled, Imprisonment and Liberation Aspects of Consciousness. At the time that Nick gave this talk, he was still on parole and living in a halfway house. So how he got permission to speak at a psychedelic conference, I still don't understand. (laughs) But for sure, it was a historical milestone in the war on drugs. As you can tell after listening to this conversation with Nick, he was the genuine article. And once I got to know him, it became clear to me that, unlike some of the wannabes in the West Coast scene... Nick sincerely believed what he was saying. There wasn't a pretentious bone in his body. At least, that's what I observed in the times that we were able to have a few adventures together. And now, it's time for some new adventures with some new friends. Nick and all of the others who have blazed this psychedelic trail before us have set us on a powerful course. Now it's our turn, so press on. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.